0: hello you guys what is up welcome back to another episode of killer instinct if you're new here hi my name is savannah and i am your host of killer instinct before we get started make sure you go ahead and hit that subscribe button that way you never miss an episode we post weekly on the podcast every wednesday and every wednesday on youtube as well and you're not going to want to miss it Now, as you guys can tell by the title of today's episode, today we are talking about a solved case that is filled with twists and turns. This is one of those cases where throughout the entirety of it, you're going to think that you know what happened and all of a sudden, you get proven very, very wrong. So that's all I can say without giving anything away, but with that being said, let's jump right on into it. Nicole Vanderheiden, also known as Nikki, was born on March 29th, 1985 in Manawak, Wisconsin. Nikki is described by her loved ones as someone who was inspiring. She was born and raised in Wisconsin, and after high school, Nikki went on to attend the University of Green Bay, where she graduated in 2010, and she got her degree in science and education. Now, after Nikki graduated college, she went on to work as a substitute teacher at a school, but outside of her work, her passions lied in fitness. Nikki was really into working out and taking care of herself the best way that she could to always present herself as her best self. And because of that, because of that energy that she put off, it really rubbed on to the people around her and she almost became magnetic. Everyone always wanted to be around Nikki. They loved her energy and they always just gravitated towards her. Now in 2005, Nikki ended up getting married to her first husband whom she had two children with. However, that marriage ended in 2012 and obviously divorce is difficult for anyone. It is not an ideal outcome for most people But during this time, Nikki really took it as an opportunity to solely focus on her kids and herself, and she was an amazing, amazing mother. She always put her kids first and loved spending as much time with them as she possibly could. And at that point in her life, after her divorce, Nikki was pretty content with her life. She wasn't focused on jumping into a new relationship or dating at all, really. Again, her main focus was her children. However, that romantic sector of her life did open back up again in 2015 when she started dating a man named Doug Dietry. Nikki was completely head over heels for Doug and their relationship moved fairly quickly. Nikki ended up getting pregnant with Doug's baby and the two of them decided to move in together and fully become a family of five. Now, while this pregnancy was definitely a shock for Nikki, it wasn't something that her and Doug had necessarily planned, she was absolutely thrilled. She couldn't have been happier. Like I said, her kids were her entire world, so she was just incredibly excited to add another to the bunch. It was almost like the more the merrier type of attitude about it, and Doug was really excited as well. They were both really eager to start this new chapter of their lives together. And like I previously mentioned, the two of them were living in Green Bay, Wisconsin at the time. And Green Bay is a very relatively safe area. They don't have a lot of violent crime. So it really did seem like the perfect place for Doug and Nikki to expand their family. So that backstory is what brings us to May 20th, 2016. On this particular night, Doug, Nikki, and a group of their friends ended up going to a bar called The Watering Hole. Now, the Watering Hole is in Green Bay, and it's a fun indoor-outdoor bar that has live music. And when looking at photos online, it really does look like an adult Chuck E. Cheese, basically. They have pool tables and an indoor sand volleyball court, and the whole thing is kind of looking over this pond on the back patio. So it's a really fun place. And like I said, they have live music there, and that's where Nikki, Doug, and their friends started their evening out on May 20th. Now, while they were at the watering hole, Doug had actually ran into some of his friends from high school that he hadn't seen in years. And once you see friends from your past or from high school out at a bar, obviously you want to catch up, you want to, you know, mingle and talk a little bit. Now, after some time of catching up with his friends, Nicole started to get a little irritated because Doug was spending some time talking to another girl in this high school friend group. And once Nicole saw that, it pretty immediately set her off and she was very upset and decided to separate herself from dug at the watering hole. Nikki was pretty much over it at that point. She wanted to leave. And so around 1130, her as well as the other group of friends that her and Doug had originally gone to the watering hole with, they decided to go to a different bar. So they went to a bar called the Sardine Can and left Doug with these group of friends at the watering hole and really didn't even tell him that they were leaving. She was just over it at the time. She wanted to get out of there. She didn't want to see what was going on. Not to say that there was anything bad that was happening, but... She was just in the headspace of wanting to remove herself from the situation. Now, once Nicole had gotten to the sardine can, her communication with Doug did not stop there. It was actually once she got there that she started calling Doug and texting him, and once she was able to get on the phone with Doug while he was still at the watering hole, Doug said that she was very hysterical on the phone, and in his words, he said that she was quote-unquote drunk and not making sense. Once they got off the phone, Nikki continued to text him and she was very clearly unhappy. In these texts, she accused Doug of cheating on her and she was calling him abusive and was saying things like, what's her name? Who's the bitch you're talking to? Those were the texts, the exact texts, by the way, that Doug was receiving. Now, according to Doug, he claimed that around 12.30 a.m., he decided to leave the watering hole with his friend, Greg, with the plans to go and look for Nikki at the sardine can. Now, when the two of them arrived to the sardine can, Doug and Greg, they realized that Nikki was not there anymore. And when Doug first saw that Nikki wasn't there, he claimed that his initial thought was that Nikki probably just went home and went to sleep and that she would be waiting for him when he got there. Now Doug ended up getting a ride home from this friend of his, Greg, and when he arrived to his house, he said that he was very shocked to see that the babysitter was still at Home. Nikki's oldest two children were spending the night with their dad this night, and so the youngest child was staying with the babysitter this night. And so when Doug got home expecting to see Nikki sleeping in their bed, you could imagine the shock that he felt when he just saw the babysitter. Now, Doug started asking the babysitter if Nikki had come home or if the babysitter had heard from Nikki at all. However, the babysitter claimed that she hadn't heard from Nikki all night and that she never made it home. Now, when Doug first heard this, his initial thought was, okay, she didn't go home like I initially thought she did, but she's probably still out with friends at the bar, just blowing off some steam, and she'll be home later in the night. So by that point, Doug just decided to relieve the babysitter and go to sleep. Now, Doug then said he woke up at 6.30 a.m. to feed their youngest child. However, Nikki was still not home at that point. But regardless, Doug said that he still wasn't super concerned. This isn't when the red flag started to go off for him. So he basically just fed their youngest and went back to sleep again. Fast forward now a few hours later when the Green Bay Police Department received a 911 call from a farmer claiming that he had found a dead body in an open field of his farm. Now, on the 911 call, the farmer claimed that he couldn't identify whether or not the body was of a female or a male because he was standing on top of a hill and he was looking down onto the field, so he didn't get in close proximity of the body. However, the one thing he could say about it was that whoever this was had long blonde hair. Now, when police arrived on the scene, they were able to identify that the body belonged to a woman and that she had been brutally and viciously murdered. There were multiple indications of blunt force trauma as well as markings around her neck that signified strangulation. Police searched the area for any possible weapons, however, they were unable to find anything. The only two things that they were actually able to find from the crime scene were a shoe mark on the woman's back indicating that she had been either kicked or stomped on, and the second being tire tracks that led up to the body. Do you ever fantasize about who you'd be if you lived somewhere different? Maybe you'd surf if you lived by the beach. Or maybe if you lived in the city, you would live above a coffee shop and finally be able to write that novel you've always dreamed of. Or if you had a dishwasher, maybe you'd actually be able to start cooking and make a proper dinner at home. With over 1 million available units for rent on Apartments.com, the you abilities are endless. Apartments.com lets you narrow down exactly what you want and when you want it. And with their instant alert, you'll never miss out on seeing what could be your new perfect place. Apartments.com has helped millions of renters find their perfect place to live, whether that's an apartment, a townhome, or even a house. And they can help you find exactly what it is that you're looking for. Visit Apartments.com, the place to find a place. Now, police were able to rule the farmers out of this equation pretty immediately because they tried to match up the vehicles that the farmers owned with the tire tracks that led up to the body, and they were not a match. So, these farmers who found the body were ruled out right away. Now, about an hour after the body was discovered, police received another 911 call. This time, it was from Doug Dietry. Doug was on the phone with police and asked if he could file a missing persons report for his girlfriend, Nikki. Now, with Green Bay being a relatively safe area, like I mentioned earlier, police were pretty confident right away that the body that they had found was more than likely Nikki. However, obviously, they had to confirm this and figure out what had happened, and so they decided to get in their cars and drive over to Doug's house to ask him a few questions. Now, when they arrived to the house, they could tell that Doug was noticeably hungover and appeared to be really tired. They ended up bringing him down to the police station to get a more accurate description of Nikki and for him to answer some more follow-up questions. Now, when speaking to Doug, police wanted to be able to see if there were any identifying factors that they would be able to link To the body that they found, basically to make a positive identification to confirm that the body that they discovered was, in fact, Nikki. So they had asked Doug if there were any identifying factors, what clothes she was wearing, if there was any piece of jewelry that she had on her. And Doug was able to tell police that Nikki was wearing a pink wristband that they got from the watering can bar. The wristband was one of those 21 and over wristbands, and that's what she was wearing. And when Doug shared that piece of information with authorities, they were able to confirm that the body that they found also had the same pink bracelet. And after confirming through other records, they were able to positively identify the body that they discovered as being Nikki Van Heiden. And when police told Doug this, he became very distressed and very emotional, and police continued to ask Doug what had happened the night prior that led them to be where they were the next day. And the timeline that Doug gave authorities is the same timeline that I just gave you. So that's all of what Doug had said happened that night. Now, police had asked to look through Doug's cell phone to see his texts and calls with Nikki, and when they did that, they found the text of Nikki accusing Doug of cheating on her and claiming that he was abusive towards her, and this was a very big red flag for authorities, as you can imagine. The spouse or the husband or wife or partner of a victim is always considered the first person of interest. It's always the person that you want to talk to first. And to see that Nikki was claiming that Doug was abusive towards her was an even bigger red flag for them. Now, several days after Nikki's body was discovered, there was a police officer who was driving around Green Bay when he came upon several pieces of clothing and other personal items on the side of the road. The items were found about a mile from where Nikki's body was, and the items that were found included a large tote bag, a black clutch purse, a pair of dark pants, a shirt, and underwear, as well as Nikki's cell phone. So police were able to confirm that all of the items found on the side of the road did in fact belong to Nikki. And police were able to theorize based on how the clothing was placed and how the other items were found, that it appeared that whoever did this was just driving down the street and threw the items out of the window to get rid of them. It definitely wasn't like this person was trying to properly hide them. Now let's talk about the autopsy report and the cause of death for Nikki. So all in all, there were 240 injuries to Nikki's body. 240 and the prime cause of death was strangulation and blunt force trauma. 30 out of the 240 injuries were to Nikki's head and face, and the medical examiner also found evidence that showed that Nikki had been sexually assaulted. However, they unfortunately were not able to get enough DNA to piece together a profile as to who she was assaulted by. Now, you might be sitting here and wondering that because Nikki was out at a public place, she was at two different bars that night, she was walking on a public street, was there any surveillance footage of her From the sardine can bar because the sardine can and right outside of it was the last place that nikki was seen and there was there was surveillance footage and when police got a hold of that surveillance footage they were able to place nikki at the sardine can with some of doug's other friends And in the video, Nikki did not seem like she was in any distress or state of worry or upset at all. However, later in the night, she was seen sitting at an outside table with some of her friends and she was looking down at her phone and she started to appear to be more and more upset. And police were actually able to timestamp the time that she sent those text messages to Doug as being the same time that she was appearing upset outside of the sardine can bar. Now, shortly after she sat down outside, Nikki was then seen getting up from the table and walking out of the bar from the outside entrance. And shortly after she had sat down outside, Nikki is then seen getting up from the outside table and walking out of the sardine can bar. But there was something else that police were able to notice on this surveillance. And that was that when Nikki left the sardine can bar, there was a man that followed her. So police started asking around. They asked Nikki and Doug's friends about this man and who it was, and ultimately, they were able to identify this man named Aaron McClinsky. And so once they were able to do that, they then brought Aaron in for an interview. Now, when police sat down with Aaron, Aaron explained to authorities that throughout the entire night, Doug and Nikki had gotten into an argument. But once they got to the sardine can bar, Nikki was in very good spirits. She didn't seem like she was too affected by it or upset. However, he said he noticed a very distinctive switch in Nikki, like a switch flipped in her and she automatically became very upset while they were sitting in the outside patio area of the bar. Aaron claimed that when she became upset, she began reaching out to Doug, and Aaron said that when he saw Nikki walk out of the sardine can, he followed her out because he was trying to help her get an Uber home, that way she wouldn't be walking around town by herself. But according to Aaron, he said that this really backfired on him because when he was trying to help Nikki out and getting her a ride, there was actually an argument that ensued between him and Nikki. He claimed that Nikki became very angry towards him all of a sudden, and she was acting very irrational, very erratic, and this altercation actually became a little physical. Aaron said that while him and Nikki were arguing, she ended up collapsing on to the ground. He said that once she collapsed onto the ground, she continued making a scene. She was yelling, and when Aaron would try and get her off of the ground, she responded by punching at him and kicking him. Now, according to Aaron, his whole thought process behind this was they were in a very public outdoor area where there were other people around. Other people were starting to watch what was going on because this was becoming a very public scene between the two of them, and Aaron said at that point he just realized it, wasn't really worth it because people were starting to think that he was doing something wrong, so he basically just washed his hands of it and walked away from Nikki at that point. Witnesses that watched this happen were also able to confirm Aaron's story with police, and based off of all of those things, Aaron was ruled out. So at this point, police continue to scour through all of their surveillance footage, and they specifically focus in on the footage of Doug and Greg when they arrived to the sardine can. Because again, the story that Doug told police was that once they got to the sardine can and noticed that Nikki wasn't there, they basically just left and went home. So they didn't stay there long, they just were there for the sole purpose of trying to find Nikki. However, what police found on surveillance told a very different story. On the security footage, it showed that when Doug and Greg arrived at the sardine can, it didn't really even seem like they were looking for Nikki to begin with. They walked into the sardine can and immediately walked up to the bar where they continued to drink and take shots, and they actually didn't end up leaving until about 2.15 in the morning when Greg drove Doug home. Police were able to put together that it now appeared that Doug was not this concerned boyfriend who was out looking for his girlfriend to try and make things right after an argument. It very much just seemed that he was out for himself at this point. And this is when some other dark truths about Doug began to reveal themselves. Nikki's mom and her sister Heather came forward and claimed that Nikki had confided in both of them on different occasions about Doug and his anger issues. Nikki had told her mom and her sister that on several different occasions that Doug had become physical with her and had hit her in the past. So at this point, police started to do a little bit more digging on Doug, and they were able to find an ex-girlfriend of his who they spoke to, and this ex-girlfriend confirmed that Doug was very aggressive with her as well. She had actually filed an assault complaint on him one time. However, the charges were never followed through, but she did claim that he would get very, very violent. She said he would spit in her face and throw things at her. And one time, he even tackled her and broke her ankle. So between Nikki's version, which she had told her mom and her sister, and Doug's ex-girlfriend's version, it's really painting a picture of Doug that he is a controlling, abusive boyfriend. So based on all of this new information that police now had about Doug, they decided that the best thing to do would be to do a search of Nikki and Doug's home. And when they did that, again, they found shocking evidence. They discovered blood in the garage of the home, blood and dirt in Nikki's car, and police also found a pair of Doug's shoes that had the same pattern as the shoe mark found on Nikki's back when her body was discovered. And those shoes had blood on them as well. But not only that, neighbors of Nikki and Doug came forward and said that while they were mowing their lawn the day after Nikki's body was found, they found blood on the sidewalk curb of their home as well as two charging electrical cords. They also found a clump of blonde hair in the lawn as well. Now with these new findings, as you can imagine, this gave police a lot to theorize. These were the pieces that really put together a puzzle for police where they started to believe that Nikki had been attacked outside of her own home. This allowed them to believe that this was the starting spot of where the attack on Nikki happened, and this is also where she was most likely killed. And not only that, it strengthened police's belief that Doug was the prime suspect because this attack had happened right outside of their home. And based off of everything they had at that time, it was enough to now arrest Doug for Nikki's murder, and this was just two days after she had been found. Now, to solidify their case, to prove that Doug was the one who was responsible for this, police took a look at Nikki's car GPS to try and track her locations throughout the night. And the reason that they did this was because there was blood and dirt found in Nikki's car, as I had previously mentioned, and police thought it was very possible that due to that fact, it could be because Doug had driven Nikki's car off to the farm field where he would then dispose of her body, and the reason he took Nikki's car instead of his own was because his was left at the watering hole for the night. Now, when police did this, surprisingly enough, the GPS actually showed that Nikki's car never moved from their house that night. And this was a piece of information that definitely sent police through a loop because they almost thought that this was going to be their smoking gun. You know, they had the dirt, they had the blood, and they were going to be able to pinpoint Nikki's car at The disposal location however they were not able to do that anymore and like I said Doug's car was at the watering hole bar the entire night and they were able to confirm that through surveillance video but police were not giving up at this point because they knew that Doug got a ride home from his friend Greg Greg and Doug, like I mentioned earlier, were best friends and the police figured that if the two of them were together throughout the entire night, it is very possible that they could have used Greg's car instead to dispose of a body. So, police then decided to bring Greg in for questioning and when talking to police, one thing that stood out to them with Greg was that he was incredibly precise. They actually accused him of being rehearsed because he was able to give out such a concise timeline. Greg said that at 12.15 a.m. that him and Doug had gotten into Greg's car and drove over to the sardine can, and while they were in the car, Nikki was calling Doug and yelling at him and was very upset and told him that she was leaving. Greg said that at the time that they got to the sardine can, it was too late and that Nikki and her friends had already left, but that Greg and Doug continued to stay there until about 2 or 2.15, which is when they decided to get back in Greg's car and Greg dropped Doug off at his house at around 2.45. Greg claimed that after dropping Doug off at his home, he then drove back to his house where he lived with his parents and remained there the rest of the night. Now, due to the fact that police were pretty much already convinced that Doug was responsible for this, they started comparing Doug's timeline and Greg's timeline and were just looking for holes in the story. However, they were not able to find any, which really that in and of itself was a hole for them because they felt it was incredibly rehearsed and they felt that this was the story that Greg and Doug had agreed on to tell police. Now throughout the questioning that police did with Greg, Greg did become very overwhelmed and he ended up leaving. Obviously he wasn't arrested so police couldn't make him stay to continue questioning but police did get in contact with Greg's parents and tried to confirm his alibi of him being home at the time that he said that he was and Greg's parents claimed that They think that Greg was home, or they thought that he was, but that was only because that's what Greg had told them. They had no physical proof that Greg was ever home at the time that he said that he was. So while all of this is going on, police ended up getting back some lab results from the crime lab in regards to the DNA that was found at the crime scene. And when they did, they were, again shocked because they were fully expecting to see Doug's DNA all over that crime scene. However, none was there. But even though Doug's DNA was not there, there was one unknown male's DNA found at the crime scene that was not consistent with Doug and not consistent with Greg. So again, this just really threw police off and it brought them more questions than it did answers because when looking at all of the evidence that they had, they had a decent amount of blood in Nikki's car, in the garage, on the shoe. They had a blonde clump of hair in the front lawn of the neighbors, two electrical cords, blood on the sidewalk, and no DNA from Doug or Greg. It was very confusing to police. But this is where things really took a turn for police because after they got those lab results, they also got the lab results from the blood that was found in the garage, in the car, and on the shoe. And this is where they were proven wrong again. The blood that was found in the garage was actually not human blood, but it was animal blood from a turkey that Doug had killed during hunting season. Along with that, the blood in Nikki's car was consistent of one of her other children and not Nikki's. So all of the blood that they thought was Nikki's was not. And at that time, police also looked into Doug and Greg's cell phone records, which confirmed their stories and confirmed that Greg went directly home after dropping Doug off. So all of these things combined now showed police that they really had nothing to connect either Doug nor Greg to Nikki's murder, and they were back to square one. So with this new discovery, police went back to the drawing board and they continued to send in any possible evidence that they had from the crime scene off to the lab to see if there would be enough DNA on any of the items to create a DNA profile that they could then send off to CODIS. Now we've talked about CODIS before and CODIS stands for Combined DNA Index System and it's a database that contains the DNA of criminals that were convicted of violent crimes and this is actually a way that a lot of cases are solved because if there's enough DNA left at a crime scene, police can put that DNA through CODIS and if the offender has convicted a crime before, police are going to be able to find the exact DNA match and in turn, that person who was responsible for the crime will be arrested so it's really just a quicker way to move the process along and again it has helped police tremendously in solving cases so police had been sending in a bunch of different items to the crime lab to try and see if there was any dna and they were just getting hit again and again with being told that there was not enough dna on each piece of evidence that they were sending in. However, ultimately they did get a hit, and that hit came from Nikki's socks. Randomly enough, the one piece of clothing that had enough DNA to create a profile to send to CODIS was on the socks, which police did not assume would be the case, which was why they weren't the first things that were sent into the lab. So at that point, police were able to get enough of a DNA profile to be inserted into CODIS with the hopes of getting a positive match, and they actually did. When the CODIS profile came back, it came back as a positive match to a man named George Stephen Birch. George Birch was originally from the state of Virginia, and police knew that this was not someone who was with Nikki the night of the murder or anyone that she knew. This was someone completely random. Now, George definitely had a rap sheet himself of being in and out of prison in Virginia. However, in early 2016, he had relocated to Green Bay. Now, several weeks after Nikki's murder, George was actually brought into the police department for a totally unrelated incident. He was there because of a hit and run that involved his red Chevy S10. And when the car was discovered, they found it a short ways away from where George lived at the time. But when police brought George in for questioning, he completely denied the hit and run. He said that his car had to have been stolen for that to happen. However, he never filed a police report for a missing car, and police knew that this was just an excuse that he was throwing out. So police decided to do a test on the tire tracks of the truck to see if it was a match to the tire tracks that were found near where Nikki's body was discovered, and lo and behold, It was another match, and at this point, police completely knew that they had their guy. And if those two pieces of very valid and physical evidence weren't enough, police were also able to place George at a nearby bar to the sardine can the night of the murder, and they were also able to track his phone GPS that showed that George was at Nikki and Doug's house the night of the murder. It also showed that he was at the farm where Nikki's body was discovered. And once police presented George with all of the evidence that they had against him, he really gave no answers. He decided that he wasn't going to talk anymore. He didn't tell them how he and Nikki met or why his phone was at those locations. He gave police nothing and he immediately lawyered up. But at that point, it didn't really matter because police already had his DNA all over Nikki's body and DNA does not lie. So George Birch was arrested and charged with Nikki Vander Heiden's murder. And when it came down to it, George ended up pleading not guilty for murder, and on February 19th, 2018, George went on trial, and at the trial, he himself took the stand, and this is where he started to give his side of the story. George claimed that him and Nikki met at a bar, and the two of them were getting along and flirting, and George claimed that he then took her back to her own house in his car. George said that when they got to Nikki and Doug's house, he parked outside of their home and that him and Nikki proceeded to have sex in his car, but he said that while this was happening, someone had come out of nowhere, opened his car door, and hit him over the head with a pistol. He claimed that the person who did this to him was Doug Dietry, Nikki's boyfriend, George said that Doug continued to beat Nikki to death and afterwards had ordered George to drive Nikki out to the farm field where her body would later be discovered. So George is basically claiming that not only was Doug the one to murder Nikki, but also that Doug had forced George to drive Nikki's body off into a farm and to leave it there. Now, pretty much everyone was able to see through this claim that George was making. No one believed it, but the prosecution needed to be able to disprove this claim. And they were able to do that because the prosecution showed that Doug had a Fitbit that Nikki had actually gifted him and he was wearing it the night of the murder. The Fitbit showed that during the time that George claims that Doug was murdering Nikki and beating her to death, Doug was in fact sleeping in his bed and at home. So because of this, this completely threw away George's allegations, but what it also meant is that while George was murdering Nikki in her own front yard, Doug was only probably yards away sleeping in bed. Now, based off of all of the evidence that they had, the prosecution also came up with their own theory as to what they believe happened that night. They said that they believed when Nikki left the sardine can bar, she was very upset and began walking away and stumbled into another bar by herself, and unfortunately for her, that was the same bar that George Birch happened to be at. They believed that she was there by herself, and at one point or another, her and George began talking and George would offer Nikki a ride home. Prosecution believes that Nikki then accepted that offer and that while Nikki might have just thought in her own head that this was a nice, innocent ride home, George had other plans. They believe George thought that bringing Nikki home was an invitation for sex, and when Nikki declined, this is when things went south very quickly. They believe that this is when the attack began, again, right outside of Nikki's home. They believe that Nikki was strangled with the two electrical cords that were found in the neighbor's front yard, and then once the attack was over, George then drove Nikki out to the field and disposed of her body. So that was the argument that the jury was presented by the prosecution. And after not too long of a deliberation, the jury concluded that George Birch was found guilty of first-degree murder and he was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. And that, you guys, is the case of Nikki Vander Heiden. And again, as I said in the beginning, this is one of those cases where, again, you feel like you know what's happening the entire way, and then something gets thrown out there, and everything gets disproven, and you're back to square one. It's one of those twists and turns types of cases. And at the end of the day, it's just heartbreaking because it was so preventable. It was just a matter of bad, bad luck. We don't often see too many crimes of opportunity that happen on this podcast. However, this was definitely a crime of opportunity. George Birch saw an opportunity to take advantage of Nikki Vander Heiden and he took it. And unfortunately, that is why she is no longer here today. But with that being said, I'm very interested to see what you guys have to say about this case. So with that being said, you guys, that's all for me today. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Killer Instinct. If you're new here, hi, my name is Savannah and I'm your host of Killer Instinct. I'll be back next Wednesday with a brand new case for you guys. And until then, stay safe. Bye, guys.